Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today, I'm welcoming Eric Hoke to the show. Eric is a co-vocational church planter and proven marketplace professional specializing in staffing and corporate training. He has worked with thousands of eager career changers from around the world, including church planters, missional church leaders, and pastors transitioning from ministry to break into the corporate world to sustain their ministries. With 15-plus years of ministry experience, a Master's of Arts in Biblical Literature, and a three-year fellowship with the Redeemer City to City, Eric understands pastors and what it takes to lead church in a modern world. A sought-after international speaker, he has trained over 100,000 professionals from brands like Uber, American Express, Moderna, and Salesforce, and is widely regarded in the corporate world. His insights have been featured on podcasts, online, and in print on platforms like Relevant Magazine, New Breed Training, and his New York City church plant story is featured in the book, Next Wave, Discovering the 21st Century Church. As a certified master coach, he can help any pastor with a problem of how to rebrand confusion and break into the corporate world to supplement their income and build a ministry of sustainability for their families. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. I am Lauren Richmond Jr. Today, I'm welcoming Eric Hoke to the show. So thanks so much for being here, Eric. Anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Uh, Nothing I can think of right now, but looking forward to having a conversation with you, Lauren. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show today. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. So share, if you would, kind of about your your Christian story, you know, what it looked like for you early coming to the faith, what that looks like today. Yeah, I'll start off very, very high level. Um, I grew up in a nominal Christian home. My mother was Episcopalian. My father came from the Church of the Nazarene. Um, their kind of meet in the middle road was the United Church of Christ that we attended on Christmas and Easter only. Um, got confirmed at 14 through that church and then decided that church was not for me. Um, mm-hmm. Had an uncle who was and still is a Southern Baptist pastor. Started attending his youth group uh, later on in high school, uh, which is where I became more serious about my faith and was baptized at 18. Um, went to Liberty for undergrad to study to become a pastor myself. And that took me on a very long and windy road. I won't go into all the details, but I spent some time as a missionary in Southern Africa, a youth pastor in New Jersey, an executive pastor in Queens, New York, a church planter in the Bronx, New York, um, where I currently uh, live and actually just transitioned from that role as of this recording about a month and some change ago. So that's kind of the uh, the very high level story of my faith background. Yeah, we're both in a period of transition here, it sounds like. Um, from my from my faithful listeners here, please, Eric. They might some folks might immediately write you off being from Liberty, but we'll have to. <laughs> well, I hope, hope you know. Stay fun, with you. The funny thing about me is I'm totally a mutt. Uh, like I said, I grew up with an Episcopalian mother and yeah. the United Church of Christ as a as a kid, and went to actually um, Nyack College for seminary. I was trained under Tim Keller and all those guys. And mm-hmm. yeah, man, it's funny because last Sunday was my first church, first Sunday where 
I wasn't a pastor of a church, so my family went to St. Hmm. Mark's Episcopal Church on Madison Avenue, Upper East Side, very progressive church. So I'm I'm sort of a spiritual mutt, is the easiest way to yeah. put it. And and to be fair, you know, throw throw me some charity before we stop stop the recording. When I attended Liberty many <laughs> moons ago, it was not the place it is today. <laughs> we'll put it, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Um, what are some spiritual practices that you find meaningful support you in your life? Yeah, man. Well, let me kind of go big picture. I, you know, I'm a full-time job. I have, I help pastors get jobs as kind of a side hustle, former church planter in, you know, an urban context. I'm also a father of three children. The eldest is going to be five next month. So my life is very full and very busy. Two things that really help me. I'm a big fan of the daily examine or daily offices. Mm-hmm. I actually have the, yeah. the the divine hours right here next to me um, with uh, by Phyllis Tickle. Big time recommend that resource. Mm-hmm. And then that's like my day to day. And then every year for my birthday, I go to a Benedictine monastery in Western New York and pray with the monks for the weekend. And that's kind of my retreat to myself. So a lot of times in contemplative prayer and reflective prayer and centering prayer, that's sort of my uh, my regular spiritual practice. Okay, well, for, for again, for our listeners, he just said Phil's tickle, so that should get him back. Okay, good. So that it didn't stop that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, good. You're probably thinking, oh my gosh, this guy's confused. Yes, yeah, I am. <laughs> well, you kind of hinted at it there that you have this side hustle of helping pastors get jobs. So recently, I've been kind of doing a lot of work on this personally and I might say professionally. Um, and I think anyone listening to this who's a pastor, anyone who's listening to this who's highly involved in, in their church and has some clue of what their church is paying their pastor probably knows that most churches can't pay pastors what they need. So, I mean, I primarily come at it from a mainline Protestant perspective. I'm guessing you probably have some, j- just based on your, your story, some familiarity from both sides. Why don't you talk about the issue as you see it? Yeah. Yeah, so to kind of go backwards, uh, when I planted the church in the Bronx, I was always a co-vocational slash bivocational planter. So the community in which I started the church is actually the poorest congressional district in the United States. People are mm. often surprised to hear that that exists in New York City. Most of us would assume, self-included, that'd be a place like West Virginia or Arkansas, right. or deep in the woods of Maine. It's not. It's here in the heart of the mo- the most expensive and richest city in the world. <laughs> um, talk about economic disparity. So you kind of couple in, you know, folks who are first-generation Americans, folks who are working you know, perhaps under the table. Folks just don't have a lot of means or the primary makeup of your congregation in a place where a two-bedroom apartment costs $3,000 a month. It didn't, yeah. it didn't take a rocket science to realize, you know what, I'm probably going to have to get a job outside of um, being a pastor. And that's what I've done for the past seven years. I've had a full-time marketplace job in addition to pastoring my congregation. And I had some mentors and advisors tell me, hey, you know what, given the, you know, what's happening with COVID-19, churches shrinking, less giving coming in, the younger generation, millennials and Gen Zers not being as engaged in congregational life like their parents and grandparents were, I think what you've done in New York City is what more pastors are going to be experiencing in the decades to mm-hmm. come, where they're going to have to have a source of income beyond the local church to support their living. I just spoke to a pastor today. He's out in St. Louis, Missouri, and he told me something that was pretty poignant. He said, I didn't get into ministry to become rich, but I also didn't get into ministry to stay poor. And he's yeah. a pastor who's 36 years old and is looking at his retirement yeah. account and realizing, you know what? I can't do this for 25 more years. I'm it's not it's not feasible. 
Um, so what I do is I come alongside and I help pastors rebrand and remessage their skills that they've acquired in ministry to get a job in the marketplace, to build a ministry of sustainability without the stress of money. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, that pastor you spoke of about, you know, I, what was the words? I didn't get into this to be poor. Oh, well, yeah, I didn't you get know. into this to be, be rich, but I also didn't get into it to stay poor. Like, I didn't think I'd right. be looking down the pike at 40 years old and realizing I have, I have zero dollars in net worth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think our Catholic brethren, right? They, they literally take a vow of, of poverty, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Um, and I know in many churches, the, the, the lay people, mm-hmm. the folks of the church kind of implicitly expect the pastor to be, to be poor or, mm-hmm. you know, of modest means. Um, you know, I, I literally had this, and, you know, part of the reason I want to have you on for our listener's sake is like, I've been wrestling with this myself of thinking like, boy, I need to get another 20, 25 years out of a career. And based on the, the trends where I see church headed, especially in my neck of the woods, um, in, in mainline, mainline Protestant context in the, in the Denver metro area of Colorado, like they're just not a lot of growth. Um, a lot of churches are really struggling with their budgets, um, and I think even, you know, even broadly speaking, um, you know, unless you're working in a big mega evangelical church, you're probably not going to be making a big income. Um, and even then that's questionable, right? Right. Um, so your solution is to help people get corporate jobs. So talk more about that, what that looks like. Yeah. So really, and it's funny you said that, Lauren, because I've spoken to not really senior pastors, but staff pastors at mega evangelical churches in the South. And it is shocking. You think of these big yeah. buildings and these big budgets and you know all these bells and whistles, and they'll call me and say, yeah, I'm making $38,000 a year as a youth pastor, and I'm 36 years old. I'm like, okay, you're mm-hmm. not making much, even though you're at a multi-million dollar church. Right. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So yeah, my solution, um, really the the typical model we think of we think of that bivocational pastor who says like i'm gonna go get a job until I, my church or my ministry gets large enough to support right. full time but i'm getting a job because i have to not because i want right. to and i really want to help change the conversation to more of what's called a co-vocational model and i can't take credit for this this is brad briscoe stuff you can check out his his resources but his philosophy and i'm on board with it i think it makes a lot of sense is what would happen if christian ministers said Hey, all of my life is a ministry, right? Whether I'm working a job and also pastoring a church part-time, it uh, doesn't matter. It's all it's all ministry. It's all God's calling and anointing on my life. So a co-vocational pastor is not a person that says, I'm going to do this and suck it up for a few years till my church is big enough. A, co-voca- a co-vocational pastor is a pastor who says, my my job, my marketplace, you know, experience is an extension of my ministry, and I intend to do both this and be a be a minister in the church indefinitely, for as long as mm-hmm. the Lord allows me to. So let me ask this: It's a bit out of order here than what I was planned, but I think what came to mind for me immediately, and I think this is one of the things that I'm wrestling with in my own life, and I've seen it elsewhere, is like the the drawbacks of bivocationality or co-vocationality. Mm-hmm. I mean, for 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 fact of the matter, there's only so many hours in a day, so many days in a week, so many hours in a week. Um, how do you manage, especially with, you know, back when I was, back when I was leading a new church start, kind of in the middle of COVID, I kind of saw the writing on the wall, like, you know, I'm going to need some other source of income. 
Um, so I applied for like a chaplain job. Mm-hmm. And obviously this was like a job within my kind of skill set and my specialty as a hospital chaplain, but also it was like incredibly demanding work. Now this was, I was working during COVID. Um, so can you talk about those drawbacks and how you advise pastors and clergy to handle those? Yeah, definitely. Well, the thing of it is I say for a pastor who's looking to become co-vocational, look for jobs that are low stress. So Mm -hmm. chaplain is not low stress. It's a very high stress job. Yeah. (laughs) Look for jobs, you know, with medium pay, like, you know, don't go become a greeter at Walmart, but don't think you're going to become the, you know, C-level leader at a large company, kind of middle of the Mm -hmm. road tier, but look for jobs with high flexibility. So one of the Mm -hmm. blessings that came out of COVID is that more and more workplaces are realizing the value of having a remote workforce or a hybrid workforce. So just to give you like a perfect case study right now in New York, it's 11, 17 in the morning and I'm on a phone call with you, but it's a Thursday and I'm technically on the clock. And granted, if someone calls me or reaches out quickly with an emergency, I can go ahead and take it, but I can probably count one hand the number of times that has happened. Um, people have this perception about the knowledge economy and working that you're like behind a desk chain there from eight to five all day, every day. That right. might have been the case 40 years ago in the 1980s, but in the modern workforce, um, a lot of companies are like, listen, just get your job done get it done on time, get it done to this quality, and we're okay. And I think that's really freeing and liberating for a lot of pastors and a lot of people who are seeking that sort of employment. Yeah, what are, like, practically speaking, I remember listening to an episode on this from, like, Tom Rainier, mm-hmm. however you say his name, because um, they suggest, like, I remember, like, UPS, UPS, what are some other, like, practical jobs, you know, you think folks might consider? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, the framework that I provide to pastors when they're kind of discerning what their next move might be is it's a bit lengthy, but I'll try to summarize it quickly. Is yeah, I um, I'll say the job search does not start with what jobs are available; it starts with how God has wired you. And mm-hmm. I think it's really hard for a lot of pastors to do that introspective work to say I've only ever saw myself as a pastor. I right. never, I never see myself as anything else. So my framework is the head, the heart, the hands, the feet. So the head frameworks is a person, if you're a person who you, you, you might be this, Lauren, because I see a pile of books behind you. If you're somebody <laughs> who's very academic, you love reading, you love writing, you love research, you love teaching, you love facilitating, you love coaching, you love that. Um, learning and development is a fabulous career path to explore for a pastor that has that that skill set. That's how I broke into the corporate world is through L&D, learning and development as the head. Hmm. If you go down mm-hmm. to the heart, the heart is a person who's compassionate, has a lot of empathy, caring, you know, loving, what have you. Um, that's a not-for-profit job. That is probably the easiest job for a pastor to transition into because, mm-hmm. you know, churches are not-for-profits. A lot of Christians work in not-for-profits. Pay isn't great, but, of course, you're doing high-impact right. work that you can believe in. If you go down to your hands, if you like fixing, tinkering, juggling, <laughs> all sorts of different tasks, duties, and responsibilities – Project management is a career path that a pastors can look into and explore. Very high demand. There's really um, excellent certifications out there you can earn, put on your resume. And then if you go all the way down to your feet, if you're somebody who's active, you like moving, you like being busy, you like a lot going on, you don't mind you know, being on the go, um, consider sales. I know a lot of hmm. pastors think sales is a dirty word, but right, it's helped a lot right. of pastors get, get jobs where they realize, you know what? 
I used to think sales was that greasy used car salesman who's strong arming someone to buy a car they don't really want or need. But ultimately, if you can believe in the service or product you're selling and you actually believe with conviction it's helping solve a problem for the person at the other end of the end of the phone call or meeting, it can be right. a very fulfilling and very lucrative um, path for someone to explore as a career. Yeah, that's a helpful model, those four um, four aspects. It's funny, you're not even seeing here, Eric, like the pile of books to my right. But, you know, like for me, I'm definitely on the introvert side of the spectrum. Um, me doing a sales job would just wear me out mm-hmm. and I'd have nothing left for like trying to pitch my church or, you know, interact with people in a ministry context. Um, you know, but, and frankly, I don't know if I'd necessarily want to do something hard because I want to save something for, you know, for, I want to save my heart for ministry, perhaps, so to speak, but like head and hands, I could probably do, I mean, you know, um, I've officiated sports, high school sports for, for several years, many years, just as like another kind of, um, you know, income stream. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a technically it's, I guess it's feet, right. But anyway, probably plays into the model. Um, so let's talk practically speaking. So certainly in, in my context, and I imagine it's, it's broadly speaking, uh, even in, in very other contexts is, um, getting like an MDiv mm-hmm. is a significant time and financial investment in a previous episode I had with two authors, uh, Josh Packard and Todd Ferguson. They talked about clergy seeing an MDiv as a quote, worthless degree. Mm. Um, and I can't, say I haven't felt similarly at times. Um, you know, uh, in their book, they talk about like someone applying for a, a job for like a parks and rec department as a youth pastor, someone who had a, you know, been a youth pastor applying for parks and rec job. And, and they're just, they did, they couldn't figure out, like they got turned down because the, the, the critique was like, you don't have experience. And they're like, that's all I do all day is like plan events and games or whatever. So how do you handle, what do you recommend to people like who have like an MDiv or, or an MS or what's the MA, I guess, you know, some kind of theological higher ed degree to translate that to, you know, obviously non-church contexts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, really this might surprise some of your listeners, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyways. When I build a resume for a pastor who's looking to get a marketplace job, I put their educational credentials at the very bottom. So hmm. I know okay. that might hurt some people's feelings. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, I spent $60,000 in three years yeah. of my life getting that MDiv, and you're going to have that be the last thing about me. Um, at the end of the day, for better or worse, companies look at a hire as, can you do the job to the point of the Parks and Recs person? So what I would do is I would highlight those transferable skills at the top, you know, mm-hmm. event planning and stakeholder engagement, budget. It's like all these things that you've done as a youth pastor, um, just highlight those at the top. And like the MDiv at the bottom can just be the cherry on top. Because mm-hmm. by the time they get to that, they think we really want to bring this person in because they presented their skills as as neatly transferable. Unfortunately, a lot of pastors, and I, and I get it, I have a seminary degree too. Um, they, they think that's the most important thing about them. And maybe that is if you're applying for a church job, but if you're looking at the marketplace job, they want to see, do you have the skills and experience to get the job done? Make that the the forefront of your um of your resume, not the, you know, degree you've earned in ancient biblical studies like I did. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my uh, my master's of arts in biblical literature has not worked very well in corporate Manhattan life. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, th- I think it's funny just because it, it, we're probably practically speaking, someone needs to have at least two different resumes then, yes? Like sure. A- sure. I mean, the thing of it is with resumes that some of your listeners may or may not know is that every resume you submit should be targeted for the job that you're applying to. Yeah. Um, there's a program called the Applicant Tracking System, ATS, and that actually reads your resume. It's AI that reads your resume before a human ever sees it. So if you don't have the keywords of your of your you know on your resume for that job, the odds of you getting a callback are extremely extremely low. That's one of the things that I coach pastors on is like you just can't mm-hmm. have your led Bible studies, did funerals, did weddings, you know, right. X, Y, and Z right. because you did those things, yes, and that's valuable, but that's not what they're looking for on the resume. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful for sure. So let's say we can get through that the applicant tracking system, you know, get through the computers, you get to a person. Um, again, this quote came from a book, a pastor was saying that, you know, saying that I worked for a church, saying I went to seminary is like saying the same thing as like, I went to Hogwarts. Like it's just a cross-cultural mismatch. Yeah. How do you advise pastors when they're trying to have a conversation with a company, HR, interview, whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the first thing is when you're in an interview, you should never bash or pick on your previous employer or what you've done in the past. The Mm -hmm. thing about like pastoral interviews, I've noticed I've interviewed at two different churches and gotten jobs is there's a very high expectation that you as a candidate come in with a good dose of humility, which rightfully so, Mm -hmm. right? Our Lord was humble. He washed feet. You want to be humble when you come in to become someone's new pastor or youth pastor or whatever. When you walk into the marketplace, what they want to see is confidence. They want you to walk in with the with the confidence to say, hey, listen, I can do this job. I've done some more stuff in the past. So what I kind of coach pastors to do is frame the conversation like this. Um, say, hey, listen, I you know went to seminary. I spent these mm-hmm. years working in the church. These are some of the things I did. I, I got into that line of work because I wanted to help people mm-hmm. get back to my community. I sense that I did that. I'm going to continue to do that, but I sense myself doing that more on a volunteer basis moving forward. Um, mm-hmm. And I really think my next challenge and opportunity is in a place like this and kind of really keep the conversation focused on the, on the future together. You know, mm-hmm. you and that company partnering together with you as their new, uh, their newest hire and not dwell on, well, I was a youth pastor for eight years and I right. made $30,000 a year. And my wife said, get out of ministry or I'm leaving you. Like, don't say that <laughs> in the job interview. <laughs> yeah. Say it was a yeah. positive experience. I learned a lot. This is why yeah. I did it. And this is why I think my next opportunity, um, what I want my next opportunity to look like. So practically speaking, what do you would, what do you say to pastors? Like, what can they reasonably expect to be able to give to a church? Even, you know, if they're trying to maintain some kind of connect or, functionality in a church setting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the thing that I advise pastors to do is I would advise them to sit down with a piece of paper and say, what can only I do? Let's call them mm-hmm. one. What can I give away? Let's call them two. And what can be completely eliminated? Let's call them three. And right. I, they'll be pretty humbled within the first 15, 20 minutes when they realize that right. column on the left, what can only I do? It's pretty short. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there would be two or three things. And I think right. for a lot of pastors, we've gotten ourselves so conditioned that we are the end-all, be-all face of the church for everything and everyone. Um, you know, I had a situation happen in my church where a member was pretty sick. I asked another member, hey, can you make this member some soup and bring it over to her apartment and just 
took an honor. And yeah. that was, you know, me equipping the saints, delegating, kind of sharing the right. load of pastoral care. Um, in a previous life, Eric would have made the soup. Eric would have gone to the apartment. Mm-hmm. Eric would have spent the, half the day caring for this person. Um, as much as I enjoyed that, and I feel like that's part of my job when it needs to be, um, I also know that the scripture calls us as ministers to be equippers of the saints. And I yeah. think if you're a pastor who you have to have your fingers in everything from preaching on Sundays to ordering the coffee on Amazon, it'd be very hard for you to be a bivocational or co-vocational leader. Yeah, that's good. You know, I'm just thinking out loud here. I can imagine only in a few contexts where there's really only certain things that only the pastor could do. I mean, again, depending on denominational or liturgical context, mm-hmm. you know, some denominations like only clergy can serve communion, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, even more and more uh, church contexts allow lay people or, or empowering lay people to preach, you know, non, non-clergy non folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's really, you know, there's so much, it is, it is hard. And maybe that, maybe that gets into something, you know, you talked about earlier, Eric, of not wrapping your identity too much around what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I'll leave it there. Um, something, something that I think that has, again, spurred my interest in this conversation is just this kind of, this kind of sense that this is the future. Um, you, you, you talked about earlier, you know, for, for many, many years, um, I shouldn't say for many years, for, for several years, you know, I heard folks saying like, oh, the, the, the era of like a professional pastor is really contextually, at least in America, like it's, it's a modern invention, so to speak, kind of a post-war, um, a relic of kind of post-war America that really doesn't exist anymore. And I kind of fought it and resisted it for a while. But the last three, four, five years, it's just become really obvious for me. And and as I see like more and more churches struggle with their budgets, um, pastors struggling with, with trying to earn enough money, like, I, I don't know, like, what your thoughts are in like broader evangelical world uh, in, in mainline world. I, I really think like this is going to be the future. Like what are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish I could speak with some level of expertise on, you know, the history of, of all that. I, I can't, so I won't speak out of depth. I don't want someone to send me an angry email, which would be a righteous anger because <laughs> they know better than I do. But um, to me, I look at my context, um, you know, New York city, Denver, Seattle, San Francisco, these are, these are canaries in the coal mine culturally. Um, yeah. I mean, what's happening in our cities is what's going to happen in suburban communities and then eventually into small towns. And I look at a place like New York City where I am, and I don't know many pastors who that is their full-time job. That's what they do. Um, mm-hmm. Cost of living is extremely high. Rent for facilities is extremely high. People don't necessarily have the income to just give substantially to their, to their congregation. So unless it's a you know, historical church with the with the wealthy endowment, um, and which many evangelical churches are not. All right, pastors do have to be either bivocational. Often, I'll see where the where the spouse will work, and they'll kind of support the the ministry spouse while they do their ministry, which can create some complex dynamics within their their relationship. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, speaking from experience, I mean, you know, speaking from experience. Yes, and I mean, I'll be honest, man. When I was a youth pastor, my wife um, was and still is an RN. And yeah, I would probably say two thirds of our income came from her and one third came from me. And thankfully I'm secure enough in my masculinity that it didn't bother me too much. But at the same time, when our children came along, it was a 
she's like, I want, I, I want to work less. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah. so we had to make some changes in our, in our life. So, but yeah, man, I think that, you know, you look at places like Denver, like New York, like these large, you know, cities, okay, but this is happening in 2023 in these places, you know, what's going to happen in, you know, small town, main street, USA in 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. that's what I'm, I'm looking at from the more of a futuristic perspective than a, than a past perspective. Yeah, it's funny. My wife's an RN too, and you know, I mean, I think again, that's kind of shaped my shaped my kind of ministry career outlook. Is that like she's the breadwinner, so to speak? Again, Mm -hmm. have my own kind of humility (laughs) in that. She's the breadwinner. Like, you know, I have to make my ministry job career calls kind of based around like that she's providing the vast majority of my family's income. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely, again, I think again, a, a challenge is going to become more and more prevalent um, in the future. So let me ask you more theoretically speaking uh, this question. So again, I come from a, or I work in a mainline Protestant context where the value of theological degrees is, is often a requirement for ordination. Mm-hmm. Certainly, at least it sounds like to me from an outside perspective in evangelical circles, there's really been an, a valuing of the MDiv, you know, in many evangelical spaces as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder again, like this is something I had, you know, asked previous guests, like do denominations, do networks, do churches need to reevaluate? Like, boy, are we asking you know, are we asking too much for people to go for an MDiv? Because from my perspective, like it's not even necessarily like like the like the money. I mean, certainly the money is. I was very fortunate um, and got a scholarship for for the vast majority of my educational expenses mm-hmm. uh, for seminary. But many people aren't so fortunate. Um, but I think more so. I think about like committing three or four years of my my prime kind of career growth time, you know, my late twenties where it could have been like advancing in a career or, you know, working on a, an MBA, which coincidentally I just finished here 10 years later, 15 years later, but like, that's a real, you know, it's a real challenge. What what do you think broadly speaking? Yeah. I mean, broadly speaking, I, I agree with you, man. I think that the proposition to tell a person, um, 25 year old let's say hey uproot your right. life move to this city that you don't know a single soul you know, right. find an apartment or you know on on campus living shell out you know 60 70 80k for a three-year degree and you mm-hmm. know i understand the value because what i think seminary did for me is it taught me how to think yeah it taught yeah. me how to analyze complex ideas and, and make them succinct and simple and that's a skill that has served me very well both in ministry and the marketplace. So I suppose you were to put value on that. I got my money's worth from that perspective. Um, but the, like that model of saying, hey, upper your life, pay all this money, live here, you know, commit three to four years of your, you know, like you said, your time of your of your 20 mm-hmm. years and you're building your career to this for a career that, you know, I don't know what it is in your world, but for my world, like a pastor of a medium-sized church, I mean, the cap they're ever going to earn you know, right. is 75K a year, maybe 85K yeah. a year. It's like, yeah. that's it. So yeah. it's a bit of a, I don't want to be crass. I, I love seminary. I love my friends that work in 
engage in that space, but you know, it's a lousy business proposition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we're gonna look at use those terms, yeah, yeah. You know, do all I mean, that for a job that at max will pay you eighty five K a year. I'll say it more harshly, and I say this with great grief because of I I mean, I love the church. I can say without a doubt my deep love for the church, but I you know recently came to me like this is a dying industry. I don't mean that like the, I don't mean like the, the the church of Jesus Christ is dying or the gospel is dying, but the institution of or the economic institution of churches being able to pay clergy well, like that is dying. Um, and in and in some sense, again, like you said, it's kind of like a a dead end job. And I mean, again, not that it's not a place without life and purpose and meaning. I mean, I believe in all those things, but like you said, like there's a there's a low ceiling in the vast majority context is what you can earn. I mean, I have a friend in ministry who like, he hasn't gotten raised in like seven years. Sure, and look at how inflation has gone up in the last seven years. Oh my goodness. Right. So, I mean, he's, he's taking it in the chin every year. Um, so obviously uh, one thing I'd recommend folks to do is connect with you and I'll give you an opportunity here to, to, to pitch your website or whatever. Uh, but one thing I did see on Twitter, you said, um, somewhat recently, as you talked about, like this is not like a a month or three month effort. Like this is a long term um, shift. So, talk about some some first steps clergy can make here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to tell a joke. If that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a pastoral friend tell me this one. He said seminaries are training people to open blockbuster videos. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's okay, a pretty dark joke, but I kind of like it. And I'm uh, gonna write that down for the show notes here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The seminaries are training people to open blockbuster videos because to your point, Lauren, is it a dying industry in terms of you know, imagine going to law school, um, similar kind of commitment and think about the endless opportunities you might have as a lawyer. There's so many different fields you can and domains you can go. And anyways, it's neither here nor there. We won't right. we won't dwell there. But yes, the biggest thing, man, when I work with pastors, it's not helping them find jobs, it's helping them find themselves. Hmm. It's helping them well, understand who am I removed from this office that I've committed the last 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, in some cases, years of my life to. And it's really kind of getting to the meat of how has God made me? How am I wired? What is you know my life go- going to look like? You know, the 2.0 version of it. And that's been the most fun part and the most challenging part to kind of untangle mm-hmm. that. Unfortunately, some pastors have this idea that had hey, led a church, people showed up to hear me preach. I had a volunteer staff. I had a budget that I managed. I had a board that reported to me. Why can't I get a you know seventy thousand dollar a year job at XYZ Corporation? They just they can't fathom that. And the right. reason why is because they don't know how to present themselves as a candidate for that role. Mm-hmm. They're still in the mindset of I'm a pastor and I do all these pastoral things. You have to reposition yourself to say, no, I'm a, whatever it is, project manager that can, you know, streamline mm-hmm. systems and build processes. I'm a learning development professional that can build curriculum and, and coach leaders and people managers. I'm a nonprofit professional that can raise, you know, revenue for the efforts of this organization. Like whatever it is, like you have to be in a rebrand yourself. Right. But you can't right. do that until you first look in and say, how has God wired me? And mm. what skills and talents do I have that the marketplace will pay a lot of money for? Until you figure that out, man, it's it's an uphill battle. Hmm. That's good stuff. Well, um, 
I shouldn't be surprised here. I shouldn't be surprised we're a little early because you're a New Yorker, fast talker, East Coaster. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> so uh, why don't we take a break here? Um, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Eric Hoke. So uh, enjoying the conversation. I hope it's helpful for our listeners. Appreciate your time and and thoughts here. Uh, so these closing questions, I always tell folks you can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what does a day look for like for you? What do you want to do? <laughs> if I'm the Pope for the day, man, you know what I would I'd love to do? This is I'm going to be very silly here for the first one. Mm-hmm. I would love for it to be like a holiday for all the churches in your town or your community to all meet up and do nothing but eat ice cream, play games. Mm-hmm have fun, have bounce houses for the kids. No, you know, no serious talk allowed and just enjoy each other, man. Like that'd be really cool. That was a day in the Christian calendar where it was like ecumenical day and all the churches mm-hmm. just hang out somewhere, just fun for the families and everyone that's, that's there, maybe some music, stuff mm-hmm. like that. That's what I would do. I'd have, I'd pronounce ecumenical day. We can say it's today. Why should I it's ironic because you're from Denver. Today is 420. Yeah. So yeah. We, we won't make it today. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go ahead and make a day. No in, comment. In July. No comment, we'll, make a, we'll make a day in July or August. <laughs> you know, boy, even in our current context, I'm like, boy, I don't know if some churches just still be like, no, I'm not going to show up. Kids, ice cream. I don't believe in that. I don't I can't hang out with those kids and ice cream. No way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Oh, man. So I'm going to go ahead and say my uh, favorite author I've been reading a lot of lately is Eugene Peterson. He recently mm-hmm. passed away a few years back. I know he's not really a historical figure. He's a more sure. modern figure. Sure. But man, I just love his stuff. I had a friend um, give me his book, Letters to a Young Pastor. And curiously enough, his son's name is Eric. So it, I feel like it was like God's special gift to me because he writes Dear Eric and then writes like a letter. Mm-hmm. And I actually just read that um, this past month. I'm like, oh, man, what would I give just have a day with Eugene? Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Oh, man. I think that they'll look back at this time as people were extremely divided. Mm-hmm. Um, people were extremely angry. And curiously enough, we I had this conversation with the young, I work with young adults, predominantly from underrepresented mm-hmm. populations in my day job. And they asked a question, I have them ask like these kind of deeper questions, get to know each other. And, you know, majority of our young adults of color and one of the questions that was asked was, if you could return to any era, what would it be? And one of the young adults said, I don't want to go back to the 1970s because there was no racism then. And hmm. everyone's kind of like, what? Uh, mm-hmm. Sure, there was. There was plenty of racism in the 1970s. What are you talking about? But then someone else made a comment, and they said, yeah, but it was isolated, right? It wasn't on the internet. It wasn't in your face. It wasn't mm-hmm. all, you know, you pull up your phone, look at TikTok and see something. Right derogatory i mean it would happen of course and it still does but it wasn't everywhere i thought wow how fascinating that you know some african-american you know young man said i want to go back 50 years when there was less racism Hmm. that's that's scary yeah that is scary (laughs) wow wow that's sobering words here um what are your hopes for the future of christianity man my my hopes is that 
the dynamic and dichotomy of the clergy laity divide would be flattened. Hmm. That pastors would not be seen as these people on a pedestal who are in their ivory towers and separate from the everyday working person. I would hope that pastors would say, just as God has called me to a ministry, he's called you lay person in the pew to a ministry. Mm-hmm. And that we would see more churches that were mobilized and maximized to be on mission together. I believe a lot of churches I've worked at, um, it's that you know Pareto principle, the 80-20 principle, yeah. where 20% of the folks were kind of engaged and giving, serving, volunteering, you know, or part of the community, and 80% or more passive spectators. And it was, you know, I know you and I are both Yankees fans, so it was like you and I going to a Yankees game. Like we're, we're, right. just watch, we're just watching the game. We're not really right. doing much. And I would hope that we'd see more people on the field playing, engaged in the mission that God has for them. But I think a big part of that is is this conversation, Lauren, about co-vocational ministry. And I've seen this in my own life, man. We, our church was, was mobile. We didn't have a physical location. So mm-hmm. we had to set up and tear down every single week. And right. we never had a problem getting folks to do that. And I can't help but wonder if part of it was people realized, hey, you know what? Pastor Eric is going to get up tomorrow morning, shower, shave, put on his work clothes, hop on a subway, go to an mm-hmm. office just like I am. So hmm. who am I to, you know, ditch this and go hurry up to the yeah. place for lunch. I'm going to stay here and get in the trenches too and help tear down the service. And I really hope that, you know, the, what I'm putting out there and how I'm supporting pastors can help bring about that change and that more Christians will be mobilized to live on mission. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, share your website or whatever, how folks can get in touch with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The website's really simple. It's called I help pastors get um, that shares more about what we do. There's a link there to schedule a free discovery call where you can spend some time with our team, kind of sharing your thoughts if you looked at like to transition into a marketplace role. There's also a free PDF that I put together as well, kind of A to Z, how to rebrand yourself. And if you really want to hear some very corny, cheesy takes, you can follow me on Twitter at my name, which is Eric Hoke, E-R-I-C-H-O-K-E. Give a story, you know, real quick story of someone you've helped recently. Get a sure. job. Yeah, actually, it's really funny because I just got an email from this guy last night. He was a pastor in Florida. He was originally from Omaha, Nebraska. He wanted to move back to Omaha to be closer to his family, mm-hmm. but he had to find a marketplace job to do right. that. Because the thing about ministry that is maybe it's a dark and dirty secret, maybe it's not, but you kind of have to live where there's jobs. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it takes you to places you want to go, and other times it doesn't. Or you're like me and live where there's no jobs. <laughs> or you live where there's no jobs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So he decided he wanted to kind of uproot. And I loved it. I mean, he was not a young guy. He was well into his 50s. And he's like, I just don't want to do this anymore. I miss my family. I miss my life back in Omaha. Mm-hmm. So funny thing with his story was we spent a lot of time working together. Did a resume for him. He um, ended up not using our resume, which is kind mm. of comical, but getting the job anyways. But the thing that he said that helped him the most was the mindset Hmm. that I do deserve, you know, this opportunity. I am the right candidate for this Hmm. role. I do have Mm -hmm. the skills and abilities to do this job with excellence. And he had reached out to me uh, just last night and told me that he got a job um, on the director of development for Habitat for Humanity. So it'd be fundraising for that nonprofit. So leaving vocational church ministry to go work at a really, you know, outstanding not-for-profit back in his hometown. 
Um, he's really excited. I'm excited for him. Well, it really speaks to like your your point you made earlier about churches expecting humility. And I guess this is a nonprofit, but I still think like they're going to know uh, Habitat for Homes is going to want to know you can help bring in some cash well, if you're yeah. working on development teams. So they're going to want some confidence. Well, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate your time. Um, always leave folks with a word of peace. So um, a word of peace. Um, I want to say go Yankees too. So go Yankees and then may God's peace be with you. Amen. Also with you, brother. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.